Hey everyone, welcome to the State of Demand Gen podcast where we're going to mash together all the different content types, events, interviews, Demand Gen Live, when I'm a guest on a podcast, LinkedIn content, all here in audio format. If you haven't already, I would highly encourage you to sign up for the Demand Gen Live sessions that I'm putting together with Gatano Denardi at 7.30 p.m., 4.30 Pacific on Tuesday evenings. Tons of great content in there, lots of great insights, live Q&A, building a little community inside there. I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And now to this episode. Chris Walker, part two. You know when someone's on the Inside Sales podcast that... It's special when there's a part two. That's why I am delighted to have back Chris Walker. Thanks, buddy, for getting the band back together again. Super happy to be back for part two, Josh. I think Back to the Future, there was three parts, right? Well, I think that there's probably at least one more coming. (laughs) I won't get ahead of myself, but it's probably coming. Is that where we go back to like the Wild West? (laughs) (laughs) So I've been a huge fan and follower of Chris Walker. I had the pleasure of joining him for a fireside chat down in Miami. And lately I've been inhaling his posts and his content. If you're not following Chris Walker, get off this podcast right now. Just stop it and go follow him and then jump back in to here. What I'd like to talk about today is what I see as a huge missing piece in terms of your ability to get higher converting cold email response rates or called response rates or meetings or revenue. And that is not knowing your customer well enough. People glance over this, they brush over it, they get these persona docs that end up sounding like a bunch of buzzwords. And the impact of that is if you don't know your audience and you don't know how they talk and you can't get inside their head, then when you message to them, your message is not going to resonate as well as it could resonate. So Chris, I am delighted to have you on the podcast today to talk about that, man. For sure. And let's go into it. I don't think that this is um, just something at like the SDR level or the marketing level. I go into companies that are $50 million in revenue and the CEO doesn't understand the customers. And so I do think this is a huge opportunity for a lot of people to better understand their customers, which then allows them to better outreach to them, message to them, deliver a better product. Everything starts with your customers. Why do you think that is? It's a really good question. I think that people tell themselves that they're customer centric. But when you look and it's the last week of the quarter, they start to do things that are more seller centric. And so I think a lot of companies Um, frankly, lie to themselves about how much they know about their customers or they tend to make assumptions or they have surface level understandings. Um, But what I find is, and, and I know you believe in this too, is that the juicy details are really what matter and they're actually hard to extract and find and you have to be intentional in order to find them. Yeah, and what you often end up seeing is this generic persona-based information that is given to reps. Um, And it sounds like this. You know, Lisa is uh, 50 years old. She is working in the analytics department, and she is working on analytics systems that are end-to-end platforms optimized for 360-degree views. 
and they are looking to increase their conversion rates of their data. Like it's this language that doesn't sound like a person. And the impact of that is that reps kind of take this information and they use it uh, not only in their cold outreach and their cold calls, but I also see marketing using it on the websites. And when you, when you start to talk like that, you, you kind of, you confuse people as Donald Miller famously said, when you, you confuse, you lose. And I just want to understand these are well-intentioned people. They have smart people working in marketing. They're smart executives working at this company. And yet time and time again, when I go into organizations and I try to understand something very specific, you know, who is it that you're selling to? What specifically sucks about how they're getting the job done today? And talk to me like it's an infomercial, like I'm 10 years old. Like, give me the before version. And then what's changed for the better after using your product or service? Like, what's the color version? Companies really struggle with it. And they often end up sounding like a buzzwordy googly gook. And what's what's the root cause of it? Like, what's going on that this is happening so much? I think it stems from a couple of things. The first one that comes to mind, to be frank, is that I don't think that executives incentivize people to do it. And so people people do the behaviors that are incentivized or measured or awarded inside of companies. And I just don't believe that it is. Um, and so I think that's probably the main one. Um, but funny enough, if you're an SDR doing these activities may not be incentivized directly, but if you're able to better understand your customers and what they care about and the details and the language that they use, then you can definitely be more effective in exceeding the quota and potentially hitting bonuses and different things like that. Yeah. Just to make this a little more specific, I just want to do a quick exercise here just so you can understand the difference, right? I'm going to read you two emails, email number one and email number two. And I want you to tell me which one just sounds more interesting. And just for context, we're going to pretend that you are a triathlon coach you're selling a triathlon service. A triathlon is a event where you run, bike, and swim consecutively. And the person that you're selling to is not just an athlete. They're a triathlete. And they're not just a triathlete. They're what's called an age group triathlete, meaning someone like me, who's not a professional athlete. That's a 50-year-old Jewish guy living in Boca with a receding hairline that lifts light weights. Like very specific, right? So this is email number one. Josh, I am a triathlon coach. I am the best triathlon coach in the country. I've been training for triathlons for 25 years. I've helped other triathletes complete triathlons in record time. Would you be up for a 30-minute call to explore if I could help you, John? So that's email number A. And then we'll go to email number B. Uh, Josh, notice that you are doing Ironman Cozumel in November which typically means you're spending six hours in the saddle every Saturday. And right at around hour three, you get off to run. And then it happens. The run starts to feel like a Frankenstein walk. I just want to pause there for the audience. Most people will say, oh my God, 
email number two. And that's because you're speaking the customer's specific language, right? Six hour rides, Frankenstein walks on the run. These are things that you could never make up when you're just trying to guess what the language is because you wouldn't know because you've probably never been a triathlete before, just like if you're an SDR. So this topic that Chris is going to be talking about, and we're going to go really deep to me is the secret sauce of how to crack, not only higher converting websites, higher converting copy. If you're doing content marketing, certainly higher converting emails and cold calls. And yet it's the one thing that people just don't like to do. I think to Chris's point, you're not incentivized to do it. Um, so you skip it. Chris, I don't know if you want to add any color there before we start to delve into some of the details of how we get this stuff. I'm all for email number two. <laughs> okay. Good. All right. So Chris, like you talked a little bit about how we get this and there's lots of different ways, but you really shared what I think is the magical way that the closer you can get to the horse's mouth, the better. And so Chris, talk a little bit about your idea. When you come into a company, you start to interview not only customers, but you also interview opportunities or people that actually didn't convert. We'd love to learn a little bit more and unpack that a little. Yeah. So there's, I think, three core um, customer research tools that I use that are qualitative. Qualitative meaning that the data that I'm getting is I'm not sending a survey. I'm collecting information. I can see what it feels like. I can take it in. I can hear the language they talk. And then I have to synthesize all that, that information in my brain and then make a decision off of it and not run it through a spreadsheet. And so the first one that I like to do is I like to talk to customers. And so, um, mainly because it helps me learn in a low pressure situation. So if I'm new to a company and I'm selling to triathletes and I've never done a triathlete before, it's really helpful to have people that are friendly and happy with your product tell you about how great it is so that you can understand what they're talking about. And so I think that's step one and you're comfortable to ask questions like why or how, how does that feel? Why'd you do it that way? When this happens, why did you change that dial? All those different questions. And then you start to be able to speak their language where you, you'll get to a sense where you feel comfortable then going out and almost doing the same thing, but with prospects. And you get a now, Chris, when, when you're talking to customers doing this, are you starting to understand the journey that led to purchase? I know you've, you've heard me speak about jobs to be done you know, before, but are you kind of rewinding the timeline and saying things like, hey, I know you bought you know, 45 days ago, but when did you first start thinking about this? And what was going on then that caused you to start looking? Are you kind of trying to get the, the story there or you have a different approach? I don't, I don't follow the jobs to be done framework. I think that I get there in a, in a different indirect way. Do I go in there and ask specific questions about that? No, but does the conversation end up there or with information about that? I would say most of the time, yes. So how do you do that? Are you asking specific questions? Like if someone wanted to do this approach that you're using, first off, does it start off with an invite? Like how do you even get permission to ask and talk to customers? Do you, and, and do you want to talk to just any customer or do you want to talk to customers that you more likely want to attract? Because I guess not all customers are created equal. Yeah. So the, the beginning process before talking to customers involves like a segmentation of the data. So customer segmentation, identify your best opportunity and then find customers that fit that segment that look like other ones that you want to target. And so that's the top priority. If I'm not able to get to those people or for some other reason it, uh, it's not possible, then I'll move to the next tier. 
because the people may not be 100% homogenous, but they're going to be close and they're going to have similar perspectives, which will help me learn faster. I think this is a very important point. I'm working with a client right now. And if you're listening to this, we're recording this during a pandemic, a COVID pandemic. And what they're realizing is there's a segment of the population that's actually buying now due to Corona. And so what we want to do is in this situation, context matters, talk to those customers and understand what's going on there so that we can actually understand their, their language. And so Chris, as you segment these audiences, you're essentially finding out like, who are the people we want to attract more of? And then you're sending them like an invite saying, Hey, my name is Chris. Uh, I'm not a salesperson. I'm a marketing person and I'm doing some research and I'd love to chat with you. And are you giving them like 500 bucks or like, how are you actually getting the customers to, to opt in to, to chat with you? Yeah. I've never found that the incentives are needed to be honest. I've tried them and have actually never needed them. Um, I've actually found it works better in a different way. And so typically if they fit in your best case profile and they are happy, then the salesperson or the CSM probably has a pretty good relationship with them or higher level executives. And so I write up a little bit of a script for someone that can provide the introduction, which just says, Hey, Chris is doing research um, about our customers so that we can be better at X, Y, and Z. And we're thinking about developing blah, blah, blah products and would love for you to be a part of that. And so I think the key of that one is would love for you to be a part of that. When people feel like they're contributing and their expertise is being utilized, they're very much more happy and open to that conversation. I love that. And that example that you gave seems like it's for a company that's developing a product and wants to get the perspective of potential customers. Is it a similar approach that you use for products that are already developed or is it slightly different? I th- th- that was just one example. I think it's a nice lead in. All companies have something that's going on, a feature, mm. a mm. feature, um, a different way to position, a new idea. I think th- the just the idea that you want someone's expertise for feedback is the key. And so whether it's for a product or a feature or a way to talk about something or a new idea, I think that you all can take that information and spin it to the situation that's right for you. But I think the the key is that they feel involved and their expertise is being leveraged and utilized. I love that. It's sort of like the IKEA effect in a way where people value things that they have ownership and built versus something that they haven't. And so they're, they're kind of feel, feel a part of it. I love that. So now you get them on the phone and do you use a specific framework or do you have like, these are my four questions. I know you've done this a while, so it's probably, you know, natural and organic for you. But if someone's just getting into this and they're talking for customers for the first time, it might be a little daunting. Any tips in terms of how to structure that conversation? The, the first thing that I want to point out is that I almost entirely prefer to do these in person. And so I know that's not feasible for a lot of people, but I find that it's much more effective. And so why I, is that? Why, why do you feel that way? Cause you pick up on like body cues or because you're typically meeting in their work environment. You can see what it's like. You walk through the office, they give you a tour. You can feel their body language. You can get to know them on a deeper level. Maybe you ask them to go to lunch afterwards and have a casual conversation, understand what they like to do out of work. For all of those different reasons, I feel like 
one, I think that you learn a lot more and it's worth the time and the investment of travel to get there and do it. And secondly, I feel like you get, you get more details and people are more open when you're around them. If you make them feel comfortable. You make a great point. It's, I'm not a huge, huge, huge Howard Stern fan, but I think he's a brilliant interviewer, maybe the best I've ever heard. And what I've noticed to your point is people don't really start opening up at the beginning of those interviews. The advantage he has is he has them in that room for four hours, which is unlike most interviews when you're interviewing other celebrities. And really right around hour three is where the good stuff starts to come out. Um, And it's the same thing with social interactions. I think, you know, even with you and I, Chris, when we first met, the conversations were much more deepful and more impactful just because we we hung out for a little bit more time. 100%. Yeah. So what kind of questions do you ask? I have a... A, a framework that I go through and it's just like in my head, I've done it so much that, um, I find it tough to kind of like pull it out of my brain right now, but let me give it a shot. And yeah, so, so let's say I'm an, I'm a new customer and we've had a great lunch. It was sprouts and you had a veggie hamburger. You normally don't eat veggie, but I convinced you into it. You loved it. You had a little kombucha. Maybe you're <laughs> a little burpy cause you didn't expect it to be carbonated, but we're all good. <laughs> And so, I mean, the, the first things I asked are just like, tell me about your experience with the product. And I, I tend to ask open-ended questions, which then allow me to probe. And so open-ended question, tell me about your experience with the product or can I, can I, can you help me understand more how you use it with this type of patient or in this type of situation? And they'll tell you, and there's probably three or four or five or more clues that they drop when they're doing that description. And if you recognize them, then you can probe with further questions like why or how. And so that's typically how I do it. So I'll have like a framework of five questions that I want to figure out going in. But most of the value happens in the third why or how of one of those questions. Yeah. And another tip you can use that I learned from Chris Voss as Chris Walker was saying, go a little bit deeper and probe. Uh, Chris Voss taught me a really great technique for this that might sound very silly. And I was very skeptical when I heard it until I actually tried it on my wife. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like unbelievably powerful is what he calls mirroring, which is essentially to repeat the last two or three words that the person said with a slight uptone. And they will keep talking in most cases, if you remember to be quiet after you've done that. And I think Chris, you're making a really great point, which is not to go from question to question, but to be genuinely curious and to delve in. And what are you listening for? I'm listening for cues. Um, another framework that came in mind when you were talking is a, a framework that I sometimes use called fact, opinion, feeling. And so that is a, a layer of going deeper with someone to make them feel comfortable to tell you the truth by t- using a sequence of questions. And so a fact, so you've been using the product for how long now? We've been using about well, five years, we've been, about use, five years. We've been using the product for five years. And um, what do you think is the biggest driver to why you still use it? So I love the way the bike feels on the road. I also, truth be told, love it when I stop at a red light and everyone's looking at my bike saying, where did you get that? Um, The wheels on the bike 
are super aerodynamic and they corner extremely well. The bike also fits me like a glove. I very rarely get, if at all, any back pain anymore, even when I'm in the aero position. So for that reason, I just love the, the Canyon Speed Max. And so when and Canyon, if you're listening, Canyon, this is free advertising for you. You better call me. <laughs> and so when, when people um, admire your bike, how does that make you feel? Um, feels incredible. I mean, uh, honestly, it's always nice when someone's pulling up and asking you what you're what you're riding. It makes you feel kind of like king of the hill uh, to be uh, to have a bike, uh, be fortunate enough to be able to have a bike like that. And uh, and then you know, from I'm, there, I'm a, yeah. Sorry to cut you off there. You're going to give me more. And then, <laughs> and then from there, in the feeling, I would probably spend two or three more questions because the I had to ask those two other questions to set up the feeling one. And the feeling is where you get the juicy details that you talk about, Josh, where you can actually speak to someone where they where you write the copy and they can feel it. Yeah, this is really important. Um, people buy for two reasons. Typically there's this business reason. Like, so if I have brown grass, I want green grass. I, that's the business reason. And that's what most cold email copy is focused on. But there's always this other reason that Chris is alluding to, which is the personal reason or the emotional reason for wanting a green grass, wanting more green grass in my yard, which is the feeling that I get when I'm the envy of my neighbors that walk by and they'd like stop and admire my lawn. And if you can tap into that feeling, another company that I work with does a really great job of this. They talk about the feeling you get when you can actually leave work at five o'clock and go home and spend time with your family where you don't have to stay there until seven o'clock in Excel hell trying to do lookup tables and data queries like that emotional, personal stuff it's really powerful when it comes to copy and oftentimes overlooked a, because we don't know and B because we're so focused on the logical side of the brain. And so I think to your point, Chris, tapping into those feelings and those emotional reasons behind the why is super critical that I don't think you can really get without having a conversation with someone. 100%. Now you also talk to people that didn't buy. I do. I get a lot of why good do insights. That? Why do you do it. that for? What's the, why, why do that? I think you learn a lot. Um, and I think it can be used in a lot of different ways. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, we were trying to sell, uh, at that point we were selling a product into hospitals and there was a big hospital in the, in the Southern California region that we wanted to get to. And the sales rep over there spent, it was, a I, I managed that segment from a marketing standpoint. So it was a big account for me, but the sales rep down there wanted to get that account. She spent nine months, had an opportunity it moved to close loss, was really upset. And so what I did was I just called the customer and I said, Hey, I'm the director of happiness at blah, 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 Acme company. And was just hoping that for five or 10 minutes, you could help us understand what, what happened so that we can get better next time. And she was amenable. Let me pause. I want to pause on that for a second because this, I love this. I really love. So the language there, I just want everyone to see what Chris is doing there so that we can get better next time. Chris, talk about the psychology of that phraseology. One, I think that people are always open to help if you invite them to in a way. So I think that's one. And then next time being that we expect that in the future, at some point we might interact again. I love that. This idea that next time for the future takes the pressure off. Like it's the, the subconscious brain hears there's no pressure now. 
Um, I use a very similar technique when I work with reps and they tell me their prospect has ghosted them and they haven't heard in nine months and they're following up. And to Chris's point, the reason people aren't leaning forward is because they're afraid you're going to try to persuade them to move forward or move faster. And they don't want to be the bearer of bad news. So in a similar fashion of what Chris is talking about, I will literally, and I'll do this in front of the reps, I'll call and say, my name is Josh and I'm calling to apologize. It seems like we may have dropped the ball here and I'm not calling to move anything forward. I'm just calling to see if you'd be open to sharing some feedback so that we could better address your needs potentially at some point in the future. Is that something you'd be open to chatting about? This language that Chris is talking about, whether you use his words or mine, the important thing here is to master this disarming language because prospects are scared to death of you uh, selling them and using persuasive techniques. They, they're outnumbered. They're outgunned. They, they're no match for you. And so it's no wonder that they recoil because it's the only self-defense mechanism they have. So I, I love that language, Chris. Um, okay. So I didn't mean to cut you off, but I think it's a, it's a super important point that I want people to grasp. And, and from uh, there, where do you go? And uh, one, one quick note on that, Josh, I think if this, if the rep is going to do this, the first thing they need to do is separate themselves from the sale. I think it works really well for me oftentimes because I don't have a vested interest in the sale. And so I can easily say, I know we lost and now we can get better next time. So I think if anyone's going to do that, the first thing is to admit to yourself that the sale's over and now it's time to learn and get better. Okay. So from and this is not, a, this is not a, this is another key thing I want to really make sure people get, this is not a trick to get a sale, right? So we're not using this to like then let them vent and so that you can use it against them to go and close the sale because then you're just going to, it's going to feel real awkward and it's going to really erode the trust. I think Chris is making a really good point is that you have to have pure intent. When you do this, you have to be indifferent to the outcome. You've heard, you guys have heard me talk about this a bunch of times, have an abundance mindset, but Chris, you're in a, a little bit of an advantage here because you're calling and you're not like in a sales capacity. Would you advise when people do this, that they have people doing these types of interviews that are detached from the sale? Is that more effective? I love the idea of doing it that way. I'm not saying that's the only way, but I find that you get a lot better information doing it that way. And so what we did is I called and I said, Hey, I'm the director of happiness. I was hoping that we could, you know, I, I realized that we weren't able to make this work this time, but I was hoping that you could spend some time helping me understand what happened and how we could get better. So we could, we could have a better shot next time. And then, um, she told me a couple of things. The one most important one that she said is she said, um, your, your sales rep has been calling me for nine months and having meetings with me. And we're in a contract with your competitor for the next three years. We, I, I can't buy, I can't buy from you. Um, and that's just real. It's a really interesting insight that someone was so attached to the outcome that they weren't able to just see that truth that it wasn't going to happen. And so, um, I think that one's interesting. There's a, there's other stories so wait on that one. So this, this really, if I understand this one correctly, this really didn't have anything to do with perhaps the fit. It was like, Hey, I'm locked into this thing. There's really no way out. And so I, I don't really have the desire 
it's almost like I just bought a new car, right? Like I just bought this new car and you may have an unbelievable car that instead of giving me only 200 miles for a full charge, it gives me 900, but I just bought this car. Like I'm in like month one of this lease. It's similar to that, right? It might not have anything to do with the actual car. Even if you think it's better, it's just not the right time right now. 100%. And I think this one is most, it's most valuable feedback for the rep. Um, because I think that a lot of companies set up their ABM target account list and are selling to companies that are in that situation where they just have a new car and they're not open to getting a different one. And the sales rep spend a lot of time trying to sell to someone that will never buy or won't buy in the, in the near future. But how do you know that? Like when companies are doing ABM, how would they even know that? I think, I mean, a good step would just be to ask or to try and uncover <laughs> that information. Right. Um, so like, I, you mean I, there's no like AI to I, do it. You have to actually have a conversation. What is this new, what is this thing you're talking about? I mean, ask meaning like a talk to people. I, I mean, if you think about the example that I gave the, the girl, there was, there must've been a sign somewhere where she could have figured out that they were in a contract with a competitor and that she wasn't going to win, but she didn't want to admit it. And so, um, that's just an insight for, uh, for reps to think about. And now I think we can transition to something that may be more helpful from a feedback standpoint. And so yeah, now just on this one, just for reps out there, this is how, how do you have a, a, a conversation with someone that's real? If you're sensing something, here's a tool that you can use, right? You could say something like, Hey, you know, can I ask you a difficult question? And the prospect will probably say, sure. And then you could say, a lot of times when I reach out to people and we're having these conversations, they're already in a long-term relationship with another vendor. Sometimes they're locked in for a couple years, which is not a problem at all. Is that the case with you guys or am I way off base here? And if you ask the question like that and you're just honest with people, and again, you detach from the outcome and you're not using it to try to persuade, you'll find that people, if you do it with that tonality as well, uh, because that tonality doesn't sound like you're going to CrossFit. It's more like a yoga (laughs) tonality, I call it. Uh, You know, (laughs) if you do it with, with that kind of language, what you'll find is, and you do it in a calm way, what you'll find is people will say, you're right. I, I am in a three-year deal right now. And man, to Chris's point, you just saved yourself a bunch of time and heartache. So I I love that insight, Chris. All right, let's, let's keep going. Yeah. So we can bounce to a a different example, maybe. Um, so why don't, why don't you give me, why don't you give me one and then we can kind of go through the process. Give you one of, let's say that you, um, you're the rep and you were okay. trying to sell something and you lost, and then we can go through kind of a hypothetical, hypothetical situation. This will be fun. I can't relate to this cause I never lose. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, so, so Chris, I am selling HR software and I was talking to a fortune 500 company. Let's call it Geico. And I really thought they were going to buy the software and they did not. So the first question I asked is, do you have other companies in the Fortune 500 or in the insurance agency or in the insurance industry? Yeah, we have a lot of other clients that are selling complex insurance products as well, but these guys just did not close. Cool. And so what I would do is I would um, do the same thing that I said. I would call the person that was the main point of contact in the opportunity. I would say the same exact thing. And then she might tell me. She might say, you know, we explored the solution a lot and 
Um, we were looking for something that had X, Y, and Z, and you didn't have it. And typically what I find is that when people give you information where the product didn't have a feature or it was too expensive, it's a thing that I like to call a false objection. Um, and so in that case, I have now learned that I didn't do a good enough job helping her tell me the truth, or maybe she is telling the truth. And so how do you, that's my question. Like how, you, you're saying it's a false objection. How do you know that? Couldn't it be the truth? Is it always a false objection? So oftentimes how I'll get there is I'll ask, so what did you, what was the outcome? What did you decide to do? And then you'll get two things. We went with your competitor or we decided to stay in the current state. Um, and so then from there, depending on which outcome you get, then you can kind of continue to probe from there. And so what do you do now with this information that you have where you're starting to learn a little bit about why you're winning and why you're losing from a marketing and sales perspective? I noticed this is a very critical step and I believe it's your first step when you come into any org. Am I correct there? Yeah. The loss analysis I tend to do later um, in the org. A lot of the stuff happens on the front end for me with prospects and customers. However, taking all that information, this is uh, the way that I look at it is it's almost a constant engine that needs always like new oil and refinement. And so the, the insights that you had three months ago may not be relevant anymore, right? Especially today. And so I think that you always need to have a process to be continuously doing this so that you can always be very, very close to where the customer is. Um, yeah. I love that. You can never know the customer well enough. There's a copywriter. He recently passed away. His name was Dan Kennedy. And he was responsible for these proactive ads. For those of you that are not 50 years old, this was a very famous campaign for acne medicine, primarily sold to teenage girls mostly. But this guy was like 60 years old. And like, what did he know about selling to teenagers? And you heard this guy's process. Like he was never done learning about his audience. He'd have books that they read, magazines that they read posted all over his walls. He'd watch the movies they were watching, the TV shows they were watching, what they were listening to on the radio to really immerse himself. So if you're an SDR or a salesperson listening to this, and a lot of the things I hear all the time is my boss would never let me talk to one of our customers. Mm. There's other ways you could do this that are not as strong, but like, could you listen to like podcasts that they listen to? Could you listen to, can you watch some webinars that they're listening to? Chris, do you have any ideas for reps out there that maybe can't get to interview customers, but they, they do want to level up and understand what their job is, what sucks about their job and maybe what changed for the better after using like a category of products like what we have. Yeah. I think listening to podcasts or following someone on LinkedIn or other social channels, consuming content that is the same that other people that you're trying to sell to do, you learn by osmosis. And so I, I really like that approach. Um, another pro approach I've used in the past, which is not directly to customers, is that I'll look at the number one industry conference that all those people go to. And typically that industry conference has a couple things. The first one is that it has typically a media site attached to it. 
that has news and different things. So I can read all of that different stuff that they're publishing. The one that I think is more important is that when they have their conference, then you can see all the different people that are speaking and on what topics they're speaking about. And sometimes I like to reach out to the people that are speaking and ask if I could have them on my podcast, which is not one of your customers, but you might be able to do that. Um, and so those are a couple and when Chris, of and a, a quick point here. When Chris says podcast, it doesn't necessarily have to be a podcast. It could be like a zoom interview that you just do like on the down low. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And so that's, that's a really interesting strategy of looking at conferences and reaching out to people to learn a little bit about their topic. I love that idea because people have already invested the time in creating this topic. They're, they probably are passionate about it and they love to talk about it. And so being able to reach out to them in that context, I think is really important and starting a, a lingo library, Google doc and writing down some of the ways in which they speak is going to really improve your, your messaging. I, I love that idea. And they got, they got to the conference for that topic for a reason, right? And so just being able to understand whatever topic that they're talking about, it most likely is somehow important to the people that you're trying to reach to. And then perhaps you could leverage that in your outreach. Yeah. So this is another great point. I think Chris is making, I'd say 99, I'm going to say hundred percent, hundred percent of reps. If they saw a prospect speaking at a conference would write an email that sounds something like this. Hey, Chris saw you speaking at the user interface conference, really liked what you said about the importance of interviewing customers what if you could interview customers in three seconds without actually having to do any manual work? Please give me 30 minutes to talk about how we've helped other companies in this area and let's book a demo. That is something like that is what most people would do if they found some type of a workshop that their prospect was doing. I think what Chris is proposing is to not do that, um, to be more curious and to interview them about the topic in a more organic way, just for the purposes of being a better salesperson with regards to understanding your customer. And you can basically say that to them. Hey, my name is John. I'm a new salesperson here. I'm trying to get better at my job. I'm not here to sell anything yet because I don't know what I'm doing really. What I'm trying to do is better understand my market. Saw you were doing this amazing talk, really like this topic and what you said about X. Um, would you be open to carving out some time so I could ask you some questions? I run the show on LinkedIn called X and would love to ask you, you know, four or five questions and share it with my audience. I'm happy to compile all these interviews and give them to you as well when I'm done. Like something like that, that you could do on the download. You don't need to spin up a podcast. And if you did that repeatedly, God, within, I don't know, Chris, four months, three months, you're just going to know much more. You probably know more about your prospects than your marketing department would. If you have the other skills, I truly believe that's how you become the top rep is just being Mm. closer to the customers. And yet it's the one thing that nobody does as <laughs> we started at the beginning of our podcast. Super interesting. Yeah. And so we're not suggesting that you don't, you know, do what your manager's asking you to do, but carve out 15% of your time, 20% of your time to, to kind of try to execute some of these tactics that Chris shared with you. If you can't get to the customer, which is the best way, you can't bribe your manager into having a conversation with one of your customers. If you can't do that, we shared a bunch of other ways, listening to podcasts, listening to webinars, reaching out to people that you see are speaking, and also 
do what I did with Chris. Like I saw Chris on LinkedIn. Perhaps one of your prospects is on LinkedIn. Perhaps they wrote something or published something that you thought was interesting in a genuine way. Uh, you could reach out to them the same way. As long as you use that language that Chris said at the beginning, this language of, you know, I'm not here. I'm not here to sell you anything. Um, I have this show and I'm interviewing X and, and make sure you're not doing that as a trick. Like just do that to learn about your audience. Yes. Some of those conversations might turn into opportunities, but don't have the intent of having that be the goal when you reach out to people. And then there's, I think you asked a question that I, I really want to touch on, which is what do you do after you do the amount of interviews that you do? Let's just pretend it's six or 15 or whatever in that range. What happens is that at some point you start to hear the same things again and again. And you reach a point of diminishing returns where the questions that you're asking, you you after interviewing eight people, they're all the same and they each say the same thing. You can start to extrapolate that across a broader set of people. And so you start to extrapolate that information and then you say, OK, I have this hypothesis and I, I like this stage. I think very few people do it which is that based on what I've learned in the first round, I develop hypotheses that I want to test and validate the next time. And so then I'll say, I think that this is, this is something that will resonate with people. This is the, this is something that they're struggling with and this would solve it. And then I'll go out to a different set of people and I will validate or, or, um, you know, prove wrong that hypothesis. And once most people do that in, in SDR cadence testing, I prefer to do it with people up front because you get the qualitative insight as to why or why not it's true. And then if you can validate that it's true, then you start to refine the cadence. And you do this with different types of segments, right? If you are in a company that sells to lots of different types of people in lots of different business units, the idea here is limit it down to the people that are worth the most amount of money to your to your business, the people that you're helping the most. But do you then, you, you group them, right? Like, hey, I'm, this week I'm, I'm interviewing analysts. Next week I'm interviewing people in sales ops. Is that kind of how, that's how you think about it? Because not everybody's the same. Yeah, we start, we're starting to get into like segmentation and, and what I would consider like core marketing strategies. So hopefully mm -hmm. if you're in a large company, someone has already figured this out. Um, but you should be able to, to decide who you think is the top opportunity, whether it's the most revenue, the fastest sales cycles, you decide what's most important and then start to, then you have to make a decision whether you're going to go deep with one or wider with several. And I think that's a case by case decision that needs to be made. Chris Walker, as usual, you have said it all. Not quite. We have part three, remember? <laughs> In the wild west, just like back to the future. Chris, <laughs> tell people what you do and how they can get a hold of you. Yeah. So 14 months ago, after working uh, for five years in venture back startups, running brand and demand gen and content marketing, I started a, a company. I think it's quasi like a hybrid consulting agency company that does demand generation for fast growing B2B SaaS companies that are already spending at least $25,000 a month in online ads. And what we do is we essentially act as a part of your team as a vice president of demand gen, as well as all of the, the media execution 
and we guide your content and creative teams to execute our strategy, which we believe delivers superior results to what most companies are doing today. And then we report those business results to the CMO that helps them quantify their impact and their results. And then once they do that, they get like the pool in their house or get to go on vacation. They get to do whatever they want once they report those results, I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. So um, typically these companies are going through a transformation right now. A lot of companies that were historically sales led are recognizing that they might want to transition to either product led or marketing led. So I think those two go hand in hand. And so we help companies with that transformation so that the, the reps are not a hundred percent outbound. I love that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Even though it, uh, makes me out of a job because I'm an outbound guy, but I still love you. <laughs> Chris, how do people get a hold of you? LinkedIn is the best. Chris Walker on LinkedIn. Chris, thanks so much for dropping so many knowledge, Bob's man. You are the best. Thanks, Josh. Great to talk to you again.